Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. Making news this week, a new model projects 300,000 American deaths from COVID-19 by the end of 2020. While President Trump defended his management of the crisis, including his view on testing. You know, there are those that say, you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the books. Read the books. What books? In Congress, the battle over a new economic relief package continued without resolution. Here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. We believe the patient needs a major operation while Republicans want to apply just a Band-Aid. We won't let them just pass the Band-Aid, go home and leave America bleeding. And more wins for progressive Democrats in primary races across the country. In Missouri, activist Cori Bush ousted longtime incumbent Congressman William Lacey Clay. We have to have um, people who are supporting and advocating for the regular everyday person. Um, And now that doesn't mean we just need to switch out everybody in Congress because that's not what it's about. What it's about is where there is failed leadership. Lots of news this week, lots to dig into, and we have a great panel to help us do that. With us from Washington is Margaret Talov, uh, politics and White House editor at Axios. Margaret, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. And Sung Min Kim, White House reporter for The Washington Post, who focuses on the intersection of the Trump administration and Capitol Hill. She's with us as well. Sung, good to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's begin uh, With Jonathan Swan's interview uh, with President Trump on Axios, it was a 40-minute interview or so at the White House. Swan was incredibly well-prepared, sparred with the president about the pandemic, Russian intelligence, mail-in voting, Black Lives Matter, among other subjects. So I want to start right off with a, a little bit of a clip. So here's an exchange from that interview about different metrics regarding uh, the pandemic and the death rate. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, it started to go up again. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, We're lower than the world. Lower than the world. Lower than Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. So that's Jonathan Swan uh, interviewing President uh, Trump this week. Margaret Tullif, I want to start with you, um, Jonathan Swan, uh, a colleague of yours at Axios. What, what, what did you hear in that interview this week? Uh, it's, it's a remarkable interview. And uh, as you can imagine, it's a pleasure to Edit Jonathan Swan. Uh, but if I would really encourage any listeners who haven't watched the whole interview to go back and watch it, because if you listen to that clip, you hear this kind of hint of incredulosity in his voice. But if you watch it from the beginning, you'll see that it's kind of a place that he ramped up to as the president would kind of continuously try to redirect, um, remaneuver the conversation to fit the, the narrative that he wanted to pursue. Um, what you What you're hearing in this moment is the president trying to find a kind of a, a winning narrative or a, a, a narrative of success inside uh, a statistical thread that really shows something quite different. 
And you see the president come armed with charts, prepared with uh, sort of uh, colored graphs showing different levels in different places, but it doesn't address the question that's actually important to a person who gets sick in this country um, or who has lost a loved one in this country. And, um, you know, part of this is that the the president is provided with statistics to kind of help him uh, help him stay upbeat because his team understands that um, that he you know, that he'll feel very frustrated if he doesn't feel like he's winning. But part of this is the president's just has been consistently unwilling to look at the statistics as a whole and own them and say, the U.S. has got to do better. And you hear Fauci say it, you hear lawmakers say it, you hear every basically every governor and mayor and public health official in the country saying it, but the president is just uh, so focused on trying to find an argument to show why the U.S. is doing better than other countries that in this interview, I think you see him really unwilling to just face the numbers as they exist. Face the numbers that, as they exist and, and offer some numbers of his own. I mean, for instance, he, he, he makes the statement in the course of this interview that he's responsible for saving millions of lives. I mean, at one point he says that. Sung Min, what did you hear in this interview? Um, did it, was it as striking to you as it was to Margaret? It was definitely as striking to me. I thought it was a terrific interview, and it really showed the value of just following up. We know the president talks a lot, talks a lot to the media, and talks in and, and, and shares, you know, questionable or shares claims that are questionable in fact. And I thought what that interview showed was just the value of following up and just asking him to prove his claims because a lot of times there is not that data, there's not that fact to back up what the president is saying, it's particularly on the coronavirus. Um, you know, they one passage that was remarkable to me was when the president insisted that there are people who insist that there is too much testing. I have not heard of a single person who says the United States could be doing too many coronavirus tests. And Jonathan just kind of followed up and said, who is saying that? And the president didn't answer and just kind of tried to pivot and move on. And I thought that was really illuminating. Uh, Margaret is completely right that the president um, and his team have really have really tried to put a rosy outlook on um, on on their handling of the pandemic. And there is a certain kind of, um, you know, cheerleader mode that the president of the United States has to do at a, at a time. But the president has continu- has continually, you know, struggled to grapple with the, re- at least in his public comments, grapple with the reality and the severity of this pandemic. And I thought this interview really showed that um, in an excellent way. You know, um, can I, um, yeah, go ahead, Margaret. Offer like an insight. Um, this is kind of like for news nerds or inside the room. But um, <laughs> one of the values, I think, of this interview um, is that it it helps um, maybe helps people see the experience of what it's like to try to ask questions um, of the president. And in larger formats, like a news conference or a gaggle uh, at, before he takes off on a flight or something, it's very hard to kind of follow through. Uh, because a lot of people are shouting questions at the same time, and the president's very adept at redirecting. And um, a lot of times in a print interview, you you a print interview is harder to express the dynamic. It's you can you can write a story about the answers or or the not answers, but it's the nonverbal cues, the the redirects, and just the kind of experience of 
um, well, that unfolded there, I think is that obviously was not the intention of the interview was to get answers to questions, but an interview on camera like this, um, and, and the same is true for Chris Wallace's earlier, it does show some of these dynamics of the way the president operates. I had a friend who sent me an email, uh, dictionary.com has like a word of the day, and the, uh, the their offering for Friday, August the 7th is axiomatic. And I think she thought of it because it sounds like axios. <laughs> it's an a- axiomatic, uh, yeah. it's an adjective that means self-evident or obvious. What I like about the interview is that it really gives you kind of a pure stream of of consciousness of the experience of trying to press the president on questions like this and hold him accountable and and connect the dots. It really does, Margaret. And I liked your suggestion that for listeners, our listeners who haven't actually looked at that interview online, it's a great recommendation. Do it because it's interesting on so many levels. It's fascinating to see the president put in that spot and uh, and answer the questions. And, you know, for journalism nerds, um, I think watching Jonathan Swan, I mean, it's a case study in, in how you sort of remain calm, insistent, push back, courteous, but just hold on to the facts and keep insisting that the, the president answer the question. It was really something. I want to play another moment from it. So this is about uh, reports that Russia offered the Taliban uh, bounties on American soldiers. The Times broke the story in June. The president spoke to Putin, um, Russian President Putin, on July 23rd. Here's how he reacted when Jonathan Swan asked him about it. It never reached my desk. You know why? Because they didn't think it was intelligence. They didn't think it was real. It was in your written brief, though. They didn't think it was worthy of it. I wouldn't mind. If it reached my desk, I would have done something about it. It never reached my desk because... Do you read your written brief? I do. Do I read a lot. Really? I read a lot. They like to say I don't read. I read a lot. Uh, Your your daily intelligence brief? I comprehend extraordinarily well. uh, Probably better than anybody that you've interviewed in a long time. So I, I want to ask you both about this. What, what's the calculus here by the White House? Because um, I think you, Margaret, mentioned the, the interview with, with Chris Wallace. Now he's doing um, Jonathan Swan. These are two interviews where I have to say the president seemed outmatched by the people interviewing him. Um, the White House is full of smart people who know what the president is going gonna, is gonna to get when he sits down with an interview like this. Why do they do it? Why did they agree to it? You first, Margaret. Uh, I think these are, uh, in the case of uh, the Chris Wallace interview, an interview on a network where the president feels comfortable. I know he's sometimes critical of Fox now more than he used to be, but not compared with you know, other networks. And I think um, in our case, you know, we're a news organization that he feels is treated unfairly. Uh, it's a reporter who President Trump uh, feels he could get a fair uh, hearing from. And so the White House has been frustrated that they don't like the narrative arc of the coverage. And uh, the president has want has wanted to get out there and uh, kind of uh, attach his narrative to talking about everything from, I think, uh, the coronavirus to Joe Biden and the presidential election. The problem is that when when you really come prepared, factually, some of these questions are difficult to address with talking points. They You have to have kind of an honest conversation about it. And when it comes to this issue with Russia and the bounties and the intelligence about it, the president seemed to be touching on the idea that um, – 
you know, for a bit there, touching on the idea that there were questions about the intelligence or that sort of thing. But um, to compare it with the Soviet, <laughs> the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan decades ago just didn't make a lot of sense. Right. I'm struck by the idea about why this isn't a bigger scandal than it seems to be. I mean, the idea that an intelligence report of such consequence uh, didn't make it to the president's desk, or if it did, he didn't read it, or if he did read it, uh, now is he lying about it? I mean, any of the above is pretty shocking. Um, Anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about the Jonathan Swan interview after the break. We're talking about the week in review. Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about the news of the week, including President Trump's interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios. Here's another moment from that uh, interview when Swan asked the president about the national conversation about systematic racism, particularly against black Americans. I did more for the black community than anybody with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln, whether you like it or not, people say, oh, that's you really you, you believe you did more than Lyndon Johnson, who passed the Civil I Rights Act? I think I Act. did, yeah. How? Because I How got possibly did you reform done. I got prison reform. Lyndon Johnson. I've done things. I've done, well. He passed the ask, Civil Rights ask, Act. How has it worked out? If you take a look at what Lyndon Johnson did. You think the Civil Rights Act was a mistake? How has it worked out? President Trump there with uh, Jonathan Swan of Axios. I'm here with Margaret Taleb from Axios, uh, Sungmin Kim of The Washington Post. And joining us from Detroit is Kat Stafford. She's national race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press. And Kat, great to have you back on On Point. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks, Anthony. I'd love to get your response to this Axios interview and, and, and you know, start with what we just heard, the president's uh, response to Jonathan Swan about uh, racism in America. Yes, I I think what this interview really shows is a continued pattern um, in regards to President Trump not fully confronting the the racial history of this country, right? It's the very thing that a lot of Black activists and and really other folks have really been taking the president to task over since he became president of this country. So it's not entirely surprising to hear uh, the president say this. These are remarks that he's been making for quite a long while. I was struck in terms of some of the questions around race when Jonathan Swan asked him to uh, think about uh, John Lewis's legacy. All the president could say, I don't know much about John Lewis because he didn't come to my inauguration. Yes. And, and, and to hear the president say that about John Lewis, a, a man who literally dedicated his entire life to the, the civil rights fight for the struggle for not just black Americans, but for 
everyone in this country to hear the president kind of rebuff the legacy of John Lewis. It, it frankly upset a lot of people. A lot of people want to hear the president of this country in this moment really have an honest discussion about racism, the fact that it is deeply embedded within the fabric of this nation. So to hear him say that um, is once again, uh, you know, seeing the president not fully confront and reckon with the moment that we are currently in. Hmm. Well, uh, Margaret, Sungmin, and, and Kat, let's move on. I want to talk about um, efforts um, to fashion a new stimulus bill. And there's an impasse between Democrats and the White House uh, on a new stimulus plan. The two sides remain uh, far apart. So let's uh, listen to a little bit of tape here. Here's how Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she appeared on PBS NewsHour on Tuesday. She said she was committed to ensuring uh, unemployed Americans get that $600 in federal benefits a week. We're far apart in terms of our values, quite frankly. We're far apart in understanding the gravity of the situation. Are we determined to find an agreement? Yes. We will find our common ground, but we, don't, we won't find it on the slim read of a piecemeal bill that says to uh, our workers... You used to get 600, you're now going to get 200 because uh, the virus has intensified in its spread. And the day after that, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell accused Democrats of blocking the relief package with their unwillingness to compromise. Here he is on the Senate floor. While Americans are struggling, the Democratic leaders have moved about one inch, one inch in eight days. For the sake of the millions and millions who need more help, Let's hope they decide to get serious soon. Kat, let me come to you first on this. Uh, What do you hear in this debate, in this impasse? What's your take? Well, what I hear is uh, Congress, you know, not fully listening to what Americans are seeing in this moment. Americans are crying out for help from their leaders. We are talking about a country that is really facing what I like to call three crises at once. We're dealing with the health fallout, you know, African-Americans and other people of color dying at disparate rates from COVID-19. We're also dealing with the economic fallout, which is what this discussion is really about, the fact that more people need money to just sustain their lives. But we're also dealing with this racial reckoning, right? And so right now, I think Americans are saying, hey, we've been out of work for so long. How can we function? How can we continue? So people really want to see Congress come to a resolution on this because there are still so many communities across the country right now where people are really out of work and they're struggling. Rent is due. What's the answer? Yeah, rent is due. And there, there are reports of a, lots of people facing eviction um, not far down the road as well. Sung Min, I'd like to come to you on this. Um, what is the blockage? Well, let me ask you this. I mean, the, the last report that I read very quickly before we went to air was it seems like these talks are close to breaking down altogether. What's the latest? What do we know? I mean, right now they look like they really are on the teetering of collapse. I mean, we always say in these tough uh, congressional and administration negotiations, there is always kind of the bad meeting before there comes a deal. You Both sides kind of have to let out their anger, let out their positions. There's always kind of like that tense meeting. But, um, but on Capitol Hill for the last two weeks, it's been a series of those bad meetings, and there just doesn't seem to be any public progress. 
Um, they are, you know, even just speaking numbers, they are trillions of dollars apart. You know, the, the starting proposal for Senate Republicans was about $1 trillion, um, with a, a plan that the administration had mostly endorsed. Uh, Democrats are sticking to a $3.4 trillion plan that passed the Democratic-controlled House back in May. And it's, it's remarkable just how, um, you know, we are in the middle of this economic and public health crisis. We are, act- we are actually past certain deadlines, and there doesn't seem to be an actual willingness for a compromise, at least mm-hmm. that we're publicly seeing. And right now, what we're seeing more is political positioning and posturing so you can blame each other when the fallout comes. I think Democrats believe they have the upper hand here because they, you know, they were at least able to pass through one, uh, w- one, um, uh, passed through one of one of the chambers of Congress a proposal, and that Republicans are severely divided on theirs, and that's why House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer have been unwilling to compromise as much as uh, Republicans would like. But uh, Republicans are increasingly, you know, getting really serious about um, their unwillingness to kind of move off their proposal that I would emphasize would never pass the Republican-controlled Senate nor be signed into law by the president. Now, President Trump is threatening executive orders to um, to deal with at least some parts of what would have been done legislatively. And I would point out that there are legality questions as to whether he can do that. Yeah, Sungman, um, hold up hold up just yeah. a second, because I wanted to read part of that tweet, which uh, I believe came yesterday. So before he departed for Ohio, he tweeted, Um, I've notified my staff to continue working on an executive order with respect to payroll tax cut, eviction protections, unemployment extensions, and student loan repayment options. Sounds hopeful, Margaret. Um, Is it? I mean, can the president do this sort of thing by executive order? How would that work? Yeah, we haven't uh, seen the language yet, although our understanding is that it has been drafted and that these are multiple executive orders, not one. But uh, Nancy Pelosi has signaled publicly that she doesn't think that he can. And even if he can, I mean, the president can't um, appropriate money. He can just redirect money that exists within his jurisdiction, within his purview. Right. There's this Uh, whole thing about Congress holding the purse strings, kind of important. That that whole thing about (laughs) separation of powers, right? And so um, would Pelosi do something to challenge it? What would her recourse be? Or would it just be a matter of the president not really having enough money to actually – do uh, what he's suggesting he's going to do, what the what the White House could do, what the president could do. And I think this will certainly be a part of the strategy is give states more flexibility to spend money. But that's money the states were counting on to do other things with. So if you push the blame onto states, then, well, we gave the states the power to do it. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think this is we could be looking at sort of a lot of politics and not that much substance until Congress actually acts because you still need Congress if you're going to do real money. This stuff costs real money. And here are the latest jobs numbers, right? The economy gaining 1.8 million jobs. Okay, that's better than no jobs, but that does not signal the kind of robust economic recovery or even like recovery, economic recovery that the president wants heading into um, the core of the election season. And uh, this affects, look, this totally affects individuals, especially people who are out of work, right? 
or who are small business people, but it also affects the economy. And if consumer spending takes a dip as a result of less money going into spending, it could have massive implications nationwide and even globally. And that is the bet. That is the wager that, uh, well, that the Republicans are taking ultimately because they are the ones who uh, where the president is the incumbent and he's he's where the buck stops on the economy. Mm. Yeah, that new jobs report, you mentioned 1.8 million new jobs in July. Um, that report, I mean, it's funny, you can read it in sort of two ways. It's like, wow, it's almost 2 million jobs. On the other hand, there's it contains evidence that the hiring is actually slowing down. And of course, the unemployment rate is still over 10 percent. Um, so uh, big challenges there. We need to move on because there's lots of other stuff to talk about. And I want to talk about some of the election primaries we saw this week in several states. So let's talk about uh, Missouri, where Cori Bush, a single mother, a pastor, a leader in the growing uh, protest movement, ousted longtime Congressman William Lacey Clay. Uh, and this was really the latest jolt to uh, the Democratic establishment by progressives. So here she is uh, discussing the potential significance uh, of her win. I believe when people see someone like me, someone who is just a regular everyday person, uh, uh, an essential worker, working class nurse, you know, single parent, someone who's been unhoused, been uninsured, been a low wage worker, a survivor of sexual assault and domestic violence. When people see that, you know, they it speaks to them. And it's and it's also signaling. So it's not just signaling, signaling to the community, hey, we need a regular everyday person in Congress, but it's signaling to other people saying, hey, I can do this, too. I can run. That's Corey Bush uh, on our program yesterday. Kat, uh, Kat Stafford, I'd love to talk to you about this this race. Uh, what what do you think? What's the significance of it? It was quite something because um, William uh, William Lacey, I mean uh, William Lacey Clay. Uh, I mean, people have been voting for Clay in that district for a long, long time because, of course, his father had the seat before him. Yes. So this is a a legacy. This is a, a, you know, road that's been filled by his family for quite a long time, like you said. But what this signals is, it's it's two different things. And it's historic, really, on two different fronts. Uh, Cori Bush will be the first Black woman to ever represent that community, namely St. Louis in Congress. And that alone is significant. Um, But it's also kind of concerning that in 2020 that this is just now happening, right? But the other piece of this is, it's also historic because Corey is known in that community for her on the ground work, on the on the ground activism and her deep community roots. I mean, she really, uh, you know, came on the scene for her work in Ferguson after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown. Right. So what this really is a sign is that once again, communities across the nation are pushing for change. They're saying that they want leaders who are not just progressive thinkers, but who are actually on the ground in their neighborhoods, talking to them and taking what they say and putting that into tangible action. So for me, when I saw that, um, you know, she's going to likely win the seat, it really represents a sea of change. Hmm. Yeah, um, her win, Cori Bush's win, follows the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, among others, who knocked off long-serving Democrats. And um, let me come to you, Sung Min, about this. I mean, I'm curious what you think. You know, they're part of this generational and political split within the Democratic Party. We talked about this a bunch yesterday. But what do you see as the significance of sort of progressive Democrats flexing their muscles in this way, particularly in an election year? 
Well, I think that it's just, um, it, it shows just so much of that progressive energy that is really rising within the House Democratic Caucus. And you are not just knocking out uh, people who have been there for a short amount of time. I think the loss of um, Elliot Engel, who is a chairman of a very powerful committee, was a very significant win for the progressive movement. And I think we're all kind of watching the next, uh, if, we're, if we're talking about trends here, we are watching the, um, the upcoming election of uh, Congressman Richie Neal in Massachusetts, who is himself facing a primary challenger who has gotten criticism under the Trump administration for not being, you know, perhaps not as aggressive uh, in standing up to President Trump as he could have been, particularly on his tax returns, which is his jurisdiction as the uh, chairman of the powerful uh, Ways House Ways and Means Committee. So that's definitely a race that we're watching. Um, a, a, another dynamic I do want to point out, too, is if, you know, Joe Biden, when does win the presidency, who, you know, by most measures is not considered uh, you know, progressive in the types of these candidates that we're talking about. How does this rising insurgent left in the House Democratic Caucus work with um, a significantly more moderate uh, Democratic president? And what are those tensions? Well, what and how does that affect policy being made on Capitol Hill. It's a great um, question, Sugman. And, and uh, one thing I wanted to sort of throw in there, you mentioned uh, Richard Neal, Congressman Richard Neal of Massachusetts being challenged. He's being challenged by uh, Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse. So that is indeed an interesting race to watch. Margaret Tal, though, pick up on Sugman's point about uh, what this might pretend for a, a Joe Biden, should he win the presidency? Because one of the things we heard yesterday was not a lot of... Uh, enthusiasm from these new progressive voices for Joe Biden, but a commitment to work hard to get Donald Trump out of office. But then the point, uh, yeah, when if Joe Biden makes it to the White House, he's going to hear for us from us if, um, you know, if he doesn't respond to the issues that we think are so important. Right. Well, I mean, I think, look, in the short term, Joe Biden has to look at this as an upside and an opportunity because, uh, yes, in a primary election, this would make things difficult for Joe Biden. But Joe Biden survived the primary process in a general election. If these are voters who can be motivated to turn out and and some of and in some cases, some of these voters may not have turned out in 2016, that could be enough in key states to help push Joe Biden over the edge, right? But then, of course, be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> then if you win, you have to govern. And it's you cannot, um, you, uh, you can't uh, dispute the notion that um, there is not just a progressive, because what does progressive mean anyway, an activist um, movement in the Democratic Party that is rising up and taking their seat at the table and is an activist movement that is um, dem- that is uh, racially diverse, ethnically diverse, and has a lot more women in it. Uh, and whoever the next president is, is going to have a hell of a lot of challenges on the economic and social front to contend with. And this new movement pushing them, pushing them to the left. We are talking about a big week in the news about the pandemic, about primary politics coming up. We're going to be talking a little about the presidential election, conventions, uh, among other issues as well. We're talking about the week in the news. I'm Anthony Brooks. We'll be right back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university 
shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Next week on the program, we're going to devote an hour to talking about love during the pandemic. Listeners, we want to hear your stories. How has the lockdown changed your most important relationship? Or how has it felt to be single during all of this? We want to hear about your best physical distance dates and your worst. Tell us your story at 617-353-0683. Again, that's 617-353-0683 and join uh, the program next week. This hour, we have a great panel to guide us through the week in the news. I'm here with Margaret Talov, politics and White House editor at Axios. Sungmin Kim, the White House reporter for The Washington Post, who focuses on the intersection of the Trump administration and Capitol Hill. And Kat Stafford, national race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press, is with us as well. I want to talk a little bit about some presidential election news. Uh, first, we expect any day now to hear from Joe Biden about his running mate. Lots of speculation around a number of African-American uh, women in particular, including Kamala Harris of California, Susan Rice, the former U.N. ambassador, Karen Bass, the congresswoman. Um, I we had a, a, an indication that this would be coming this week. It hasn't. Kat Stafford, what, what do you know or thinking about in terms of the timing this, of this announcement or what you expect or hope to hear from Joe Biden? Yes. So right now, everyone uh, is expecting that an announcement could be made next week. But again, as you just noted, uh, this is changing every day. Um, But I do want to point out that in this moment, um, I think it's important to specifically pay attention to the Black electorate right now with the emphasis on Black women and what they are really hoping to see come of this announcement. We had a story that we wrote earlier this month that really dove into the history of Black women in politics. And in this moment, what they desire, what they're demanding to see. And what struck me about this moment is a lot of Black women are saying, if not now, when? When will we see a return on an investment that we have long made in this Democratic Party with our support by ushering our family and friends to the polls and really making sure that we support these candidates? When will we see something in return? And for a lot of women, what that means in this moment is they are hoping that Joe Biden will pick a Black woman to be his vice president. Not just any Black woman, but a Black woman who has the ability to empathize and really understand a lot of these longstanding and systemic issues that have plagued Black Americans for so long. 
So I think in this moment, this pick is going to be crucial for him because once again, we're in the middle of this racial reckoning, right? So he needs someone who could be his partner and stand by his side and really help uh, push the country toward the right direction should he be elected. Mm. Margaret, I'd love to hear from you on this, both on this issue of timing, when we might hear from Joe Biden and what you sort of hear in this delay. Well, I don't know if we call it a delay, but there has been an expectation that it could come any day, any day now. Now. And also respond to Kat's uh, point about uh, it seems like this would be a difficult thing for uh, Joe Biden to go against um, with so many qualified African-American women uh, apparently on his short list. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, every source that uh, my reporters and I talk to uh, who's uh, uh, around or close to or inside the Biden world uh, acknowledges uh, that with um, the uh both the coronavirus's disparate impacts on people of color and with the killing of George Floyd and the aftermath that followed the national demonstrations, the call for change, that it really changed the dynamic, uh, the calculus in terms of uh, it being important not just to have a woman, but a woman of color on that ticket. And so you saw there were many people who thought Elizabeth Warren would be a good running mate, including many African-Americans who said Elizabeth Warren has the most uh, in-depth policy proposals to deal with um, minorities and and uh, and disparities in, in economic disparities and health disparities and so on and so forth. Many people who think that Gretchen Whitmer uh, could make sense as a, a, a running mate for him who say that calculus has changed now. So our reporting tells us that the two uh, uh, top choices are uh, Kamala Harris and Susan Rice. And for very different reasons, both are accomplished Black women uh, who have served uh, in government, but Kamala Harris has been has uh, served in elected office and has a higher national profile. Susan Rice has not served in elective office, and while is very well known among people who follow policy closely, is not as much of a household name um, with the average voter. But uh, Karen Bass also has uh, been. Uh, uh, seriously considered, but there is a feeling that uh, her chances have uh, diminished uh, in the wake of um, revelations about some of her past support of uh, the, you know, uh, or not just support, but rhetoric around Cuba and around Scientology right. and, and the notion that, you know, like a House member. And Margaret, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I yeah. just want to sort of for listeners who, who are catching up with this, Karen Bass, of course, Congresswoman from California, uh, black caucus leader in Congress and uh, uh, extremely well regard, regarded by the liberal wing of the of the Democratic Party, but go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, that's right. No, but uh, but you know, like there's always a danger in this speculation. We could all be completely wrong, and it could be somebody else. But uh, consistently, what we're hearing uh, inside our reporting is that it, Harris and Rice. Uh, present kind of the two choices that both Biden and his inner circle are most focused around. Uh, We know that he has a a friendship, a genuine friendship and a close working relationship with Rice from her time uh, inside the Obama administration uh, and even dating back to the campaign like 2007, 2008. Right. Uh, But that we know with Harris, uh, even though there are some uh, some bristling and some not perfect feelings because of uh, their uh, clashes over, you know, busing or uh, racial, um, you know, racial sensitivities, Biden's ability to talk about race issues in a modern way, all that stuff that played out uh, on the uh, primary, uh, that for the most part, um, there's a sense that that's something that, that both of them could get past and that 
one of the most appealing things about Harris uh, in Biden world is the idea that the Trump campaign just hasn't figured out uh, a way to go after her. I mean, they just maybe they have one, but if they they haven't shown what it is. And internally from Trump world, we hear that that is the one that they are sort of the most puzzled about hmm. how to run against. Really interesting. Well, decision coming soon. I want to move on to to another uh, topic. Um, Sung Min, I'll come to you on this. I mean, it appears the Democratic National Convention is pretty much dead. This week, Joe Biden said he'd deliver his acceptance speech from Delaware rather than Milwaukee, which was supposed to host the DNC. Reporters are told to stay away. Not going to, I guess there'll be some primetime programming, but the question I have is, is this still a convention if nobody's convening? I mean, <laughs> what, do you th- what, do, what do you think? It really does sort of take the, you know, the excitement, the energy out of, of a convention. I mean, I think I mean, a lot of these conventions are pretty pro forma. You know, you have the speeches from various uh, high-ranking um, elected officials, rising stars in the party. It is certainly a platform for, say, like a Barack Obama to make his, uh, to make kind of his national, uh, his national kind of splash. Um, and it certainly is a venue for that. But obviously with the pandemic, the fear, they aren't allowed. You don't have kind of the similar um, you know, pizzazz that a convention would do. I mean, I think both uh, both parties are grappling with the realities of that, and it, it certainly won't be the same this year. Um, and, and in terms of having that excitement for either you know the, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, I think the big question now is what is President Trump going to do with his um, formal acceptance speech? He has he has kind of toyed with several locations, um, most notably the White House, which has actually prompted some pushback from Republicans saying that perhaps optically, optically it, it may not be a good idea to give such a blatant political speech from taxpayer-funded grounds. Um, uh, some Republican senators have even questioned whether that is legal. Um, and we know how much the White House and the Republican National Committee had pushed um, to make this a more normal convention, you know, even moving the big part, big part of the convention from Charlotte to Jacksonville, which and then uh, it obviously had to cancel the Jacksonville portion of the RNC once the White House kind of really realized just the public health dangers there. Um, so so now it's back be, in Charlotte, right? Yeah. It was Charlotte, Jacksonville. Now it's back in Charlotte with a possible speech yeah, so, from the South Lawn of the White House. Okay, this is correct. Right. A lot of the business stuff, <laughs> businessy, kind of not as fun part of the conventions were going to remain in Charlotte. But that big kind of balloon dropping from from the ceiling, everybody cheering, dressed in red, white, and blue. That part um, had been in Jacksonville until it was called off by the president a few weeks ago. Right, Margaret. I've been hearing you sort of exhaling. Uh, uh, about this idea of uh, no, 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 it, it, in a good way. I meant that in a good way. Um, it, 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 it makes me want to know what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, it's just like you've seen the president really ramp up um, the, the giving of, poli- of blatantly political speeches, like from the Rose Garden, and you know some of us old schoolers kind of had palpitations about that. But the notion of formally accepting the nomination um, <laughs> from the White House is t- takes it to a whole new level of just like talk about norm busting. So I think, you know, two things. I think number one, we're going to see a, a greatly uh, a sort of condensed and, and dialed back convention on, on both sides, no matter what the president decides to do venue wise. I think he now understands it cannot be the spectacle that he once 
hope that it would be. And what that means is that we're going to see a much sort of expedited look ahead to the debates of having much more importance than they might have otherwise, because the conventions cannot. For reporters, whether you love or hate conventions, conventions are a great way to, you know, do some of your best sourcing, catch all these people in a room. But for candidates, it is free airtime on prime time. And I think because this, the scheduling is dialed back now, there's just going to be less primetime network coverage. There's going to be less to cover. And uh, American, the American public's attention is going to be less focused on it than normal, even if there's a spectacle at the White House, even if, you know, uh, high profile names in both parties, including the nominees, are talking. Uh, it's just as as a kind of um, galvanizing event that uh, captures the public's attention. I, I just think all signs are that it's going to be less. Kat Stafford, what do you make of sort of what appears to be, for the moment at least, the end of political conventions as we've uh, as we've known them, and how and the effect that that might have could have on the presidential election as we move toward November? I agree with everything that's been said thus far, but what I would also add is that what this really shows is how far we truly have to go to really uh, be at the end of this pandemic. And for me, that's the most stunning part about all of this is we have no idea of what the end in sight looks like or when that will actually be. And when you think about that in the context of the election, when you think about the fact that uh, just this past Tuesday on the primary, just using Detroit, where I'm based as an example, there were a lot of issues at different polls, uh, people being turned turned away, told to go elsewhere. So for a lot of people that are seeing issues like that popping up for a primary, looking toward November, when we don't know where we will be in this pandemic, there's a lot of concern about what will the November election look like. So that's what I'm thinking about uh, moving forward, especially in my coverage is paying attention to, especially these communities of color where we have long had a lot of issues at the polls uh, and as they're counting these ballots. Um, really important issue uh, because it's going to be a very different kind of election because of this pandemic. I want to quickly touch on one story. Facebook and Twitter uh, took action uh, to sort of to take down essentially videos posted by uh, President Trump uh, as misinformation. Um, so this week, uh, Trump basically uh, put on Twitter, the Trump campaign basically put on Twitter a statement by the president in a Fox interview saying, suggesting that children are almost immune from COVID-19. Facebook took it down. Margaret, very quickly to you on this. It's interesting, particularly because Facebook uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said he doesn't want to be in the business of policing speech. Uh, It seems like they made a step in that direction. What do you think? Yeah, he may not want to be, but uh, guess what? Every social media chief is finding out um, with power comes responsibility. And there's a growing consumer expectation as well as inside of Congress. And it's only going to heighten if uh, the Democrats uh, galvanize their power on this. And look, we're looking ahead to a very uncertain period of time uh, where there could be um, foreign interference in the upcoming election. There could be misinformation propagated on social media. And the results of many elections, including the presidential, could potentially be contested because Mm. of uh, issues over mail-in balloting and absentee balloting. If you are a social media um, 
executive and you have the power to galvanize opinion and uh, swing votes, essentially, not di- not directly, but as a pass through uh, the, the responsibility. And if there is blame is going to fall on you to some extent. And these companies uh, are having a reckoning there. They need to learn from the lessons of 2016 and apply them in a forward future looking way. And, and we're beginning to see that, I think. Um uh, panelists, you've been great, and and we only have a short time left, and and uh, it goes without saying that these have been tough times for for lots of people. And doing a show like this means that we inevitably inevitably dwell on a lot of bad news. So, in the last minute or two, I want to ask uh, at least one of you, depending on how much time we have, for a bit of good news that you're thinking about, or something hopeful or aspirational that can send us off into the weekend with something Mm. to smile about. So here's my thought. Uh, It begins with grim news of the moment. Earlier this week, we did a show looking at the surging pandemic across the country and around the world. And at the end of the program, I asked Harvard epidemiologist Bill Hanage to give us something to feel hopeful about in this moment. And, And here's what he said. The sense of community, the sense of outpouring of people eager to help, that's something which makes me feel sort of inspired. I mean, we are living through historic times and, we, you know, our grandchildren are going to be asking us what this was like when they write school projects about it. And when people ask me what was the thing that you know, gave you hope, I would just say people. Just people. That's Bill Hanich, professor of epidemiology at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Sungmin, we only have about 10 or 15 seconds left. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask us for something hopeful as we go off into this weekend. Um, I think I would go along with what was just said. I think that in, in crisis, you do see so much of the community come together, even if our elected officials may struggle at times. Um, you see so much of the community pitching. It's like it, it, I've just seen it in my neighborhood, and I'm, I'm sure others as well, you know, collect food, diapers, essentials for our neighbors who are struggling to make ends meet right now for economic reasons, um, and just really give them themselves. Uh, and that's just been really hopeful and inspiring to see you. All right. Sungmin Kim, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. And Margaret Talif, politics and White House editor at Axios. Always great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Kat Stafford, national race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press. Kat, have a great weekend. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks. You too. That's it for today. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. (laughs) 